We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. How can you make everything in your relationship work better next time around after a nasty breakup or a bitter divorce? It's easy to think it can't possibly be worse. The promise of new love is strong and healing, but somehow reality begins to seep into the new dawn problems creep back in again. Contrastingly, after a painful bereavement, it's easy to think you can't possibly find another relationship that will be as good as the love you lost. Whatever the reason, and whether you are striking out on a new relationship or several years down the road, my witness today and I have a lot of combined wisdom to share. Terry Gaspard is a licensed clinical social worker and marriage therapist, an author of Daughters of Divorce, which we discussed on a previous edition of The Meaningful Life. Plus also the remarriage guide, how to make everything work better second time around. She got divorced in 1995 and has been married to her second husband for over 25 years. My first partner died in 1997 and I've been with my second for 22 years. Now, Terry, you thought you were well prepared for remarriage. You'd seen your father and stepmother navigate the problems. But eight years after marrying Craig, you hit problems. What happened? Well, we hit some bumps in the road, Andrew, and those primarily had to do with our three children that we blended. I had two and then we had another child. Finances, which are always very much of a stress for couples. And then different ways of parenting, different perspectives. You know, I'm te- I tend to be a little more nurturing. My husband tends to be a little more authoritarian from his background. He came from a two-parent family. I came from a single-parent family. And as you well know, and our audience knows, your childhood does affect you. So I have a tendency to be very concerned about my kids and, you know, a little too tolerant in certain situations. So I take responsibility for the fact that I didn't make my second marriage to Craig a priority. I spent too much time with my family, my kids, when he would want me to go on vacations with him up to Maine or Nova Scotia, wherever he wanted to go. He's very much an outdoor person. I often had an excuse or a reason or an event that I had to attend. And so we didn't spend enough time together. We didn't develop what I described in my book as rituals of connection. You know, we didn't have coffee together. We didn't, we rarely went on a date or spent time alone away from the children. Craig will tell you if he was here today, he felt like an outsider, which is very common. He felt like he was on the outside looking in at my relationship with the kids, but never could really, he couldn't really join us. So that's why I decided to write the book. I wanted to find out some words of wisdom from people that had successful second marriages because there's not a a lot of current research out there. You know, we were able to go for counseling. We were able to really get back to those loving feelings 
that we had prior to getting married that had really dissipated. And we had too much conflict, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Although we thought we had the skills to resolve the conflict, I found myself walking on eggshells a lot. Didn't want to argue in front of the kids. So marriage counseling really helped us to communicate better and, you know, make our marriage a priority and not blame each other. We started looking more, this is the situation we're in. It's challenging. It's a lot more complex than what I thought as a kid growing up and seeing my my father and my stepmother. Because I was a child, I kind of thought, well, everything runs on automatic. Everything runs smoothly. But I guess if I interviewed them today, which I couldn't do because they're deceased, they'd probably tell me they had some rough spots too. What are the most common problems you see in your practice? Andrew, with a second or third marriage, you're really combining your world with your partner's world. So typically you're not, you know, in your 20s or 30s. My husband and I were in our early 40s when we met and got married. And you have established finances, relationships with people, work schedules. And, you know, it's not always easy to communicate the importance of spending time together as a couple because you're dealing with so many complex issues. So what happens a lot is people start blaming each other and they start saying, well, you know, you're not, you're not doing this or that. That certainly happened with me. And then, you know, sometimes the parent who doesn't feel included, and in my husband's case, he was a step-parent, feels like an outsider. And being an outsider is is a problematic place to be because you don't feel included. You, You feel resentful over time. So those are some of the complexities in addition to just dealing with the baggage that we all bring to relationships. And, you know, the more relationships we've had, you know, marriage, remarriage, and so on, the more baggage we can build up. And it's having to do a lot with trust issues. Does my partner have my best interests at heart? Or is he too focused on his job? Is she too focused on the kids? So in my book, I I give a lot of suggestions for developing secure attachment as a couple. When I had my second relationship, my biggest problem was making comparisons How do you deal with that? Well, I think you've got to start fresh. It's not easy to heal from the death or the divorce that you've had in your intimate relationships. But if you've processed it and you've allowed yourself the time to grieve successfully, hopefully you can, you know, see the person that you've decided to form a marriage with the second time around as someone that can not always blend with you perfectly or not agree with you on everything, but add some new things to your life, keeping that, you know, flexibility in your mind and that flexible mindset is really important. My husband and I don't agree on a lot of things, but what we've come to do is be able to compromise better and listen better, turn toward each other instead of looking away or being distracted by other things. And, you know, if something's really important to him, I usually give in and vice versa. So you have to start fresh and realize that every relationship is a teacher and teaches us a lot about ourselves. I I love that idea. Every relationship is a teacher. How much support do you think in general society gives to second time around? Hardly any at all. And that's really the reason why I wrote the book, The Remarriage Manual, 
because Craig and I thought we knew a lot. We're both licensed clinical social workers. He doesn't work with couples. He works in a clinic. I work with couples. And we were stumbling. We were struggling. You know, a lot of it had to do with loyalty conflicts with the kids, how we could carve out time together. You know, we started blaming each other rather than the situation. And we couldn't find any marriage counselors at that time, 26 years ago, that really had experience with remarried couples. And a lot of the books were outdated or, you know, they were highly religious or they didn't really deal with the problems that we were experiencing. Or they're entirely focused on stepchildren. Exactly. So you have the 10 keys to a successful second relationship. We're not going to have time to do them all, but I've picked out five that particularly speak to me. The first one is building a culture of appreciation, respect, and tolerance, which I think every couple could do with help with this one. But the idea that I particularly like that you have is building rituals. So tell me about that. Those rituals can be rather brief, like a 30-minute ritual of having a cup of coffee and planning your day or rejoining at the end of the day, taking a walk you know, just, you know, turning towards each other, cuddling on the couch as you catch up. It's nice to add physical affection. Or they can be longer. I recommend both. I recommend a blend of quick rituals that couples spend at least 30 minutes a day connecting, you know, and if you can't spend 30 minutes, at least give each other a hug or a brief kiss you know, what? what's your plan for today? What are we going to do later? And then later on in the evening, hopefully spend some time together. And then at least once a week, a longer ritual of connection. Some couples like to go for a bike ride, you know, or even play a game together, something where you're interacting in a fun kind of non-threatening way. This is a non-stressful situation. This is not to talk about conflict. One of the best ones I came across from a couple, and they were not only very close, but they also had a great sex life, and that's they had a bath together every evening. And I thought, what a beautiful way to sort of unwind and sort of move into a different headspace together. Exactly. And having a good sex life is one of my chapters because it is important that often goes by the way, wayside, you know, because couples feel like roommates after a while and everything else takes a priority and they don't, they go to bed too late. They're too, everybody's plugged in. Everybody's, you know, got their phone on or watching TV or whatever. I recommend unplugging at least two or three nights a week and doing something together. Massage is also a nice ritual. It doesn't have to take a long time, but just like a nice little neck massage between you and your partner, something where you're enjoying each other's company. If you can add the physical affection and really try to enrich that love that you had to begin with that drew you together. But over time, what happens is the limerence, those hormones, you know, and that excitement kind of wears off when all the complexities of paying bills you know, when they're young, it's daycare. And then when they get older, it's college, yours, mine, our kids, all that. And you sometimes forget love can be sweeter the second time around, but you have to, you have to nurture it like a garden. So the next one I'm going to pull out is ditch the baggage. And in this, there was an idea that 
I've actually been contemplating for the last couple of days, so perhaps you can talk us through it. If it's intense, it's yours. So tell us about that, because I think that's a really good thought to think about. I recommend that couples try to do a body scan when you're in conflict. And if you're feeling very heated up, you feel your heart is racing a bit, and you have a fight or flight or freeze kind of reaction to something your partner says. And with me, it's finances. I'll truly admit. (laughs) My husband breaks up how we're going to spend our money, where we're going to go on vacation, or anything about retirement funds. I usually do one of those three things. Often it's flee. I make an excuse to go in the other room and say, let's talk about it later because I'm a a money avoider. But if you can get in touch with your body's reaction and realize that often when we're emotionally reactive, it doesn't have to do with our partner as much as it has to do with our own baggage. So that's the time to use the I messages and check in and say, Honey, I'm feeling really pretty threatened right now, or I'm feeling, you know, a little upset. It's not a good time. Can we wait a while? Maybe we can meet and talk later tonight or tomorrow. It's really a good idea to get in touch with your own emotions and do that check in with your partner. If I say to Craig, you know, you know, money, it's hard for me to talk about money and it's important for you. I get that. Maybe you could write some thoughts down and we, you know, after a while, after dinner, perhaps we could try again. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a failure. It's just right now is not a good time for me. I'm feeling very reactive emotionally to some of the things, the topics you're bringing up. And he's gotten better with that. He's gotten better with not feeling like it's urgent. We've got to talk about it right now, unless it's something like a purchase and you know, you have to make a decision really quickly, and then that can be difficult. And I think it's actually good to say, I know this is all about me. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is that because it reminds me of ABC, so that you're very clear that this is about you, because unfortunately, our partners think that they're also the center of the universe too. And so if we're upset, it's something to do with them. But if it's intense, it's yours. So I'm going to say that one more. If it's intense, it's yours. There you are. That's our pearl. The third thing you have as one of your 10 keys to a successful relationship is don't let mistrust stop you from being vulnerable and intimate. So talk us through that idea. Well, some of the couples I work with as a therapist think that if you don't trust your partner 100% of the time, Andrew, there's something wrong with the relationship and you have to abandon it. Why not? Let's talk about separating or getting a divorce. And my way of thinking about trust is trust is really about do you have your partner's best interest at heart? And that takes a while to build. And there are certain triggers. We talked about triggers, you know, with my finances and whatnot. I also had triggers with trust. And sometimes Craig would come home late and I would feel mistrustful of him. And it was hard for me to be vulnerable and tell him about that. But then after a while, I was able to say, I own it. I take responsibility that I have trust issues. And when you run late from the office or the clinic, I start, my mind wanders and I start thinking negative thoughts about you, which I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. And that opened up some conversations with us. And he started, you know, in in those days, 
phone calls were what we used. He would call me and say, I'm leaving the office now. I'm leaving a little later. I might be delayed. And that reassured me. So we were going through that on and off throughout the early stages of our marriage. Fortunately, I didn't, you know, abandon the marriage. I didn't say, you know, I can't trust you. You're not trustworthy. I was able to own my own trust issues. And in his case, he felt like I spent more time with the kids. So he wasn't really sure in the beginning of our marriage that I valued him as a partner as much as what he believed I did. So trust takes on many different forms. It's not just about infidelity. It's whether or not your partner really wants to make you a priority and cares about you. And it can be back and forth. It can come and go. And then we've got, you've got to sort out the step parenting material. So I think I'm, I'm, I've got a podcast coming up at about a month or so where I'm doing a whole episode on step parenting. So we don't need to go into it very deep. But your husband was sort of a little bit naive about step parenting, wasn't he? Exactly. He'll tell you, he wrote a blog for my website about it, One Stepdad Story. And in it, he said he really felt like things would be a lot smoother than they were. He thought that if you care enough about your partner and you like or are fond of your stepkids, it's pretty much like an instant love. You know, you can just move in and start spending time together. And if you play basketball or in his case, football, because, you know, my husband played football all through school, then, you know, your stepson will love you and instantly care about you all the time. Does Craig believe in Father Christmas too? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So in his blog, he talked about that and he realized he had to stop trying to replace my children's biological father and just really focus on being a friend and what I call an adult mentor. You know, football's fine, going to a crafts fair, you know, if your kid's like that, whatever it is that you enjoy, playing games together. But think of yourself as a resource, as an asset, not someone that's going to replace, especially if there is a biological dad in the picture. And your kids are going to have some loyalty conflicts. There is At times, they're going to want to push you away because they'll feel, as I did in my own family growing up, that if I was too close to my stepmother, that meant I wasn't being loyal to my biological mother. So that's a fine line to walk. You know, fortunately, my stepmother understood that and we bonded around certain things that my biological mom and I didn't do together. And over time, we developed a close relationship. But if you barge into a remarried family or a stepfamily with your own agenda of wanting to have these instant love relationships with everyone, you're not being realistic. But I think the idea of a, an adult friend or mentor, and let's face it, Terry, we could all do with more mentors, couldn't we? Exactly. So, and the fifth one I've picked out, and this is a beautiful one, say you're sorry and mean it, because you talk about a grievance story. How does a grievance story work and how does it hold us back? Sometimes what we do is, due to our past baggage, Andrew, we hold on to certain core beliefs about people's behavior or their comments that are a bit irrational. Why are they irrational or distortions? Because they don't bring us happiness and joy. So if we have a mindset of forgiveness, 
It's basically, okay, we all mess up at times. We all make mistakes. And if I'm an open-minded, loving partner, I'm going to listen to Craig's side of the story and find out when, you know, he went over the budget on that item he was purchasing, especially if it was a non-essential item. Okay, I want to hear why he did that. Instead of jumping to, you're doing something that's hurtful to me. And if he can apologize for not contacting me and talking to me about it, because that's an agreement we've made, an apology that is sincere would be, I'm really sorry, Terry, that I didn't text you or call you about this. And I made a mistake. I hope you'll, you'll forgive me if I went over the budget. Can you accept that, you know, I'm not perfect and I'm going to try hard not to do that again? You know, because that's an agreement that we've made. And he knows that money is a very hot topic for me. So I think if you really take the time to own your own issues and realize that forgiveness and asking for forgiveness and apologizing doesn't have to happen every day, but it has to be heartfelt, related to what it is that you're doing and mean something. And not just, oh, hey, I'm sorry that you don't like what I said or that you're in a bad mood. No, it's not about that. That's not a sincere apology. (laughs) That's passive aggression. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It has to be about what I did hurt you, and I feel really bad about that. Even if you can justify your actions, like overspending in certain situations, it still, you know, can be a hurtful experience for your partner. So try to get underneath their emotions with your partner and realize even if that's that comment you made or that behavior that you did wouldn't upset you, like coming home late, overspending, you know, whatever it is, if it's bothering your significant other, your loved one, how about a sincere apology and make an attempt not only to say it, but mean it by showing that you're not going to keep repeating it. It's a lovely, a lovely idea. And actually, on the subject of forgiveness, I've also got a podcast on forgiveness as well, which is one I really recommend. So in a moment, we're going to be looking at a dilemma that's been sent in by a listener. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to take part in the program, you can go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. You'll be able to sign up for our newsletter. I've got a really good new newsletter that's been written by a special guest, Cheryl Fraser. She's been on the program before and she's coming up. She's going to be doing the Christmas edition with me. And she's writing about how to keep passion alive in your relationship. So if you'd like that, on all the other great stuff in my newsletter, go along there and you could subscribe to it. You can also find a section which says participate in the program and you'll be able to send in a dilemma to us. And this is the one we're going to talk about today. When we've looked at our arguments that go round and around and are hard to resolve, we've found one underlying theme. Fundamentally, they're about two very different worldviews. My husband believes it's best to prepare for the worst. 
Friends and family will let you down from time to time. Bad stuff happens, and he can give plenty of examples. We're all going to die someday. It's easier to cope if you don't get your hopes up too much. You get the picture. I believe there's no point in dwelling on the past. It has happened and we can't change it. Let's look to the future. It's going to be better and brighter. I don't want to be pulled down by Mr. Miserable. A good example is that we have to leave our flat. I say it's an opportunity to find somewhere that suits us even better. He says, how can we move forward if he's not allowed to mourn the past? Sometimes in a nasty row, he says we are too different. I tell him he's talking us into a divorce. How do we break out of this never-ending cycle? That's a complex issue. It sounds like some of the couples that I work with, and I would say some of the the items we've already discussed, owning your own perspective and realizing that you're not always going to agree. Conflict is inevitable in relationships. And as Dr. John Gottman has taught me, it's not the conflict itself that's going to break you up. It's how you manage it. You're not going to necessarily resolve it. But if you listen to your partner's side of the story and try to glean why they feel fearful why they have this anxiety about things are always going to go badly. You know, they've probably, you know, experienced some negative things. Obviously, they have baggage. And you can try to influence your partner. You can try to help them to adopt a more positive perspective. But you can never change someone else. You can only work on yourself. That's a strong belief that I have. So if you can accept their perspective, maybe you're a little bit overly optimistic, for instance. That's my tendency, you know, and I tend to have my rose-colored glasses on. And maybe my partner is more of the pessimist, you know, who's like the gentleman that you're speaking about. I don't have to throw them out and get rid of the relationship just because we have these different mindsets. I can learn from him. Perhaps he has reasons for being this way, and I can find out about that and show empathy. I can encourage him to listen to a different perspective, which in my case is starting fresh and reframing some of that negative self-talk that we all have, Andrew, such as, oh, I know, you know, the world's going to end before my child reaches college. How do you know that? You know, hopefully things are a little bit more optimistic. So you can try to influence them. And as I said earlier in the podcast or before the podcast, Sometimes you have to basically go along with who has the strongest perspective or feels the most, you know, important point is such and such and come with up with a compromise, you know, but I don't think you should let it affect you to the point where you're going to be headed towards divorce. As long as you can agree that you're going to disagree on some things, work on compromises on the areas that you can, as long as they're not deal breakers and influence each other in terms of your perspective. Almost like you're talking to a friend, not your spouse. I mean, I think when you've got a situation where you're in these sort of very opposite positions, like pessimist and optimist, I think it's always very interesting to think a bit like being on a seesaw, because Mm -hmm. the more, let's say, I'm the optimist and Terry is the pessimist, the more I press down on the optimism side, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow, the more I do that, what are you going to do, Terry? Right, I'm going to push back. 
So we're flopping backs and forwards like on a seesaw and, you know, I'm being flung in the air and then Terry is being flung in the air. How do you make the ride a little bit easier on a seesaw? Well, you move in a little bit more to the middle. And so even though we're going to be going up and down on our side, it's not going to be quite so dramatic. I'm not going to hit the floor and send Terry flying up in the air and she's not going to do the same to me. So you've got to try and move more into the middle because the more you try and persuade your partner that everything is coming up roses, the more (laughs) they're going to say those roses are going to die. Exactly. They're going to hold on to their position. With the blood trickling down their hands from the prickles (laughs) on the roses. You You get the picture. Yeah. I was very interested in this idea we're too different. Can you be too different? What do you think, Terry? I think that your personalities can be quite different. That certainly is the case with my marriage to Craig. I'm definitely more outgoing, more optimistic than he is. He's a little bit more of an introvert. So, you know, your personalities can be different as long as, in my opinion, opposites attract, but they don't always stay together if your values and your core beliefs are really different. So that is why I always recommend my clients after a breakup or marriage ends that they take time to get to know the person. Because how you want to spend your time, what's important to you, like, do you believe in, you know, giving money to charities? Or do you think that, you know, money is, you know, really tight or evil, and you have to hold on to it, you know, those kinds of things are important. And we derive those from our family background. Do they want children? You know, how do they feel about that issue? So I don't think you have to agree on everything, but if your personalities are different, you can, as we just discussed, you can learn to compromise. You can learn to listen better and hear your, what is the meaning behind what some of the things are that your partner is trying to share with you. And perhaps you can learn from that. So you don't have to be carbon copies of each other. Being different does add some excitement. As long as your core beliefs and values about the bigger issues in life are fairly similar. Because I always think we choose people for a reason. And it could be to balance it out, us out. It could be to deal with stuff from the past by sort of reworking it. But there's a reason, and you know, I'm back to being the optimist. There's a reason that I've chosen Terry the pessimist. There's something I've got to learn from her. Exactly. What is it? I mean, it's what we in the trade call the marital fit. So explain about the marital fit, Terry. Well, I think that we have all of us in our past have an image that's not necessarily of one parent or one grandparent, but it's a combined image of all of our ancestors. And we have unconsciously, I do believe in the unconscious mind, the, uh, the urge to recreate and to work through some of the unresolved issues. So as I said earlier, I have some trust issues due to my parents' divorce. So, you know, I'm attracted to someone that can help me resolve those issues by being pretty steady, pretty loyal. That doesn't mean they're always going to be, you know, able to be consistent and reliable. But I'm going to try to recreate that relationship I had with my father because he left when I was young and I didn't get to see him much by feeling secure, by feeling that my partner's there for me, 
So, you know, on the other hand, my husband might be attracted to me because I'm a little more exciting than his mother or the people he grew up with. You know, I stimulate him intellectually. You know, we have fun together when his background could have been more, you know, mundane or serious. So I do think our past affects our choice in partners and we want the opportunity to work through things and come up with some resolutions of, you know, those issues that we didn't, you know, deal with successfully. As long as we know that that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes people don't fulfill our expectations. So instead of the question, are we too different for each other? The question should be, what do we need to learn from each other? I agree. And even if ultimately at the end of the day, the relationship can't be sorted out, you still want to get the learning from it. So questions about what can I learn are sort of never wasted. So true. I totally agree. But you have to have an open mind and try to let go of some of your assumptions. And not go straight for let's talking about divorce. Because I mean, this is something that people often say to me, oh, in the fit of the moment, I say these terrible things. I don't really mean them, but I say them. That is really a destructive thing to do, isn't it? I totally agree. I tell the couples that I work with and even the ones I coach on videos, take the D word, the divorce word out of your conversations, especially when you're having conflict. Because often those ultimatums don't have a lot of weight to them. They're just set in anger or frustration. And it doesn't help to build that strong attachment and connection that you're looking for. Any other advice that you think is really important that we haven't covered for people dealing with a second marriage? I would say it takes time. And I know that sounds a little bit trite, but it takes time to build a successful remarriage or stepfamily. So, you know, check your expectations at the door pretty regularly, you know, and if things start getting difficult between you, hopefully you can read my book or other books, go for counseling. Don't give up too quickly because another reason I wrote the book is the divorce rate for second marriages is much higher than first marriages because primarily one of the reasons is people do become easily discouraged and they figure, I've been through divorce before. I can handle this again. And they start issuing ultimatums and spending time away from their partner. So give the relationship the second or third time around. Give it time to nurture and develop with those rituals of connections that we talked about. Seek out marriage counseling. Try to find someone that has some experience. Things have improved in the last couple of decades. We have more couples, counselors, and more people that are aware of the issues that we've talked about today, and they can really help you. And work out what belongs to you, because actually finding somebody else to have another relationship is probably not going to fix you. It's your task to deal with your material. Exactly. You can't change the other person. You can only work on yourself and always say, what was my part in it? When we had that conflict, what did I add to it? And that's where that issue you brought up early on about, is it an intense feeling that you have? If it is, it's probably your own baggage. Yep, that's our gem for today. If it's intense, it's yours. (laughs) 
So, as I've had you as a witness before, I'm not going to ask you what makes your life meaningful like I ask all my other witnesses on The Meaningful Life, but I'm going to ask you, what have you done lately that's been meaningful for you? So, let's have some sort of concrete things recently you've done that has been meaningful for you. Well, my husband and I went on a long bike ride and we raised some money for climate change, Mm. quite a bit of money, which felt really good. So that was something we both enjoyed. And um, I went up to Boston, which is about an hour from where I live, and I did a book signing at the Boston Book Festival and met some new people and shared, you know, my story and my book. So those two things were really meaningful for me. Those are the recent things that I can say I really enjoy. Excellent. Well, the conversation has to end for most people here, but if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life or you'd like to access the bonus material, we're going to be talking about don't sweat the small stuff, but still deal with important issues. And here's the third important ingredient to this. And how do you know the difference between the two? So if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.